For the week of June 20th, 2021, this is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 546, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news-making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jay Sperling-Reich. And in hell, I'm Michael Giltz. Oh, boy. Okay. Tell me, why are you in hell? It's, I I would like to report, it's freezing here. Oh, oh, it's it's shivery. Actually, I'm in Los Gatos, California, at the headquarters of Netflix, who have just signed a deal with Steven Spielberg. Mr. Support Movies, not that streaming stuff, has just signed a production deal with Netflix. They did the trial of the Chicago 7. They are now making all sorts of stuff. Hey, he's like, this is great. I love my friend Ted at Netflix. We're going to make lots of stuff together. Thank you for the money. Yeah, so, um, I'm sorry. Dead, I, I would have been dead. paying attention to you, but I was actually petting my new chicken. It has lips, by the way. This new <laughs> as chicken. Deadline said, hell freezes over. Spielberg <laughs> signs deal with Netflix. <laughs> oh my so that's, gosh. that's big news, I think. That's just like, yep, that's the world we live in. You know, you think I would never. Yes, I will. <laughs> so that's, that's a big story. We've got other streaming stories and other stuff to talk about. What are we going to talk about this week? Well, this week on Showbiz Sandbox, we've got box office. That's right. Box office again. Seriously, we love that the box office is slowly reopening around the world, even if it is kind of a pain trying to figure out what movies have a 45 day window or on Disney Plus in some territories they're on Disney Plus, but theatrical in others or on both theatrical and Disney Plus, but only if you pay a $35 <laughs> yeah, 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 premium. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, you know what I'm saying. We're not the only ones trying to figure this out, by the way. Marvel's Kevin Feige is a little puzzled, too, about this whole streaming thing. He said, hey, they don't seem to have any Nielsen numbers for this stuff. How do we know if WandaVision and Loki are hits? Yeah, (laughs) tell us about it, Kevin. Tell us about it. Come on. On Inside Baseball, we talk with musical, musical? No, musician, Sal, how do you pronounce his name, Michael? I should have said this. I think it's Salmeida. Salmeida and writer. We'll have to ask him. Yeah, so Salmeida and writer Mitchell Cohen, they are the talent behind a new book called The White Label Promo Preservation Society, 100 Flop Albums You Oughta Know. Could you imagine like putting that on your resume? Like, what what book did you write? It's like, well, it's got a lot of words in it. (laughs) That's a big title. Now, their book dives deep into a lot of cool music that doesn't make those best of all time lists, but are definitely worth a listen. Plus, they recruited a lot of their friends like Marshall Crenshaw, Peter Holzapple, Jim Farber, and our pal Sal Nunziato of Burning Wood to write about their favorite albums. Of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines. But first, as always, we turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Giltz to fill us in on last week's box office. That's right. The entertainment journalist extraordinaire who just knocked over the water for the dog. There's water everywhere. (laughs) But we're looking at box office around the world for the week ending June 20th. And the number one movie is, again, A Quiet Place Part 2. It made $37 million this week. It's at $222 million worldwide. In 45 days after it opened, this could go right to Paramount Plus. If it's still making money, will they hold off? We'll find out. I'm guessing not. I certainly not. hope they do. I, I Well, yeah, the, I'm guessing not because they're trying to like... Well, they're just so excited to do it. They're so excited to pull the trigger. They're like, yes, we can. So they will. But, you know, if they're still making good coin, they shouldn't. I agree. Yeah. At number two is Cruella, another $31 million because it opened up in some new territories, $160 million worldwide. It's also available on Disney Plus in premium video on demand. 
At number three, The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It. Also available on HBO Max at the same time, but it made $31 million worldwide. It's at $150 million and counting. Then there's The Hitman's Bodyguard's Wife. $25 million it made on its opening week. I think this is a theatrical exclusive. How do I figure that out? I went I, to Just Watch. I went to other places, tried to see, is it rentable? Is it on a service? It's not, it's not easy to figure out, is it? No, it's not. And I do believe it's a Lionsgate movie. So it I is. believe it is uh, theatrical only for now. All right. So we don't even know what the window might be. But it made $25 million on its opening week. So maybe it will have a sequel. If it did, it will be called The Hitman's Bodyguard's Wife's Mother-in-Law. <laughs> so... Peter Rabbit 2, The Runaway, that made $23 million. It's at $91 million worldwide, just like F9, which is what the cool kids call Fast and Furious 9. That also made $23 million worldwide. It's at about $300 million, just under that, and it's going to open up in North America, its final big market that it has going. And then right below that, probably the biggest news in box office this week is In the Heights. It made $9 million this week. It's at $21 million total. It is available also on HBO Max, and here in North America, in its second week, it fell over 60%. You know, means, everybody I know oof. who's seen this movie really likes it. Like, the people yeah. who went to see it, they, they're like, wow, that was a really good movie. Uh, it's but got I do great think- audience scores and great critics' reviews, so it's well-reviewed, and it's enjoyed by the people who saw it. It's also available on HBO Max. Yeah, and I think that's what's killing it. I think this it, is one where, where HBO Max is actually taking people out of the theaters. And I do think that because it didn't do well box office-wise, this is one where it actually hurts you because people are like, didn't that movie not do well? Isn't it not good? I heard it wasn't good. No, you heard it didn't do well financially. Not that it's not good. Yeah, so I don't know about that, but I do know that the older people are not going back to the theaters right away, and older women especially are a very strong demographic for musicals. So that doesn't help. It is available on HBO Max. People didn't turn out for it, so that makes word of mouth harder. Maybe people saw it and said, if I'm going to watch it a second time, I don't want to return to the theater. I might as well just see it on my TV. That's also, you know, that, that repeat viewing that you got for The Greatest Showman. Maybe, you know, you've paid to see it in the theater once. People went and saw The Greatest Showman three, four times. You know, yeah. people who liked In the Heights, it's on your TV. If you have HBO Max, they may just say, yeah, you know what, I think I'm going to do it that way. We'll never know. You know, you can do surveys and all sorts of stuff. We will never know, but they delivered on the film. People who saw it like it. You Uh, know, uh, Mm -hmm. there was a, a, there's an exhibitor, a a theater operator out of Ireland. His name is Graham Sperling. And he- No relation? No relation. In (laughs) fact, spelled differently, uh, S-P-U-R-L-I-N-G. And And he's very well known. Yeah, Mm -hmm. he's very well known for, uh, he's very outspoken and, and in a good way. Uh, very Let's get flashy. him on the show. I like outspoken. Let's get yeah, him on the show. And he's a very flashy dresser. Uh, and I, I mean, I love talking to him, but he, I, I remember a couple years ago, he said he hated this whole, uh, the greatest showman. He had never yeah. seen it, but he was like, good grief. Don't give me this rubbish. I don't want to see this stupid. And I have to keep playing it. And Fox keeps telling me I have to keep showing it. Then he was flying over to CinemaCon and he watched the greatest showman on the plane. He loved it. So much, he watched it four times in a row. <laughs> and he's still, I think, to this day, playing that movie in his theater. 
<laughs> That's very funny. <laughs> well, playing in China is On Your Mark. This is a Chinese drama, a weepy. It made $8 million on its opening week. And looking at the trailer, it's about a father and son. The mother is dead and the son wants to run. And the father, no, you can't run. You have the same problem. He's blind. The son is blind, but he still wants to run. He also plays piano and everybody's crying all the time. It looks like a, a, a three hanky movie. But it had a decent opening week, uh, as did the second week for Beyond or Never Stop, this Chinese film. Not quite sure what title to translate into English as. That made $7 million, and that's at $17 million and counting. Then there's a new movie in the Chinese territory, I think. It's called Man in Love. This is a Taiwanese comic drama, sort of a romantic film, about two debt collectors, a woman and a man, who fall in love. And then, of course, tension mounts. But it's funny, and then it's scary. It's got that sort of twist to it. It made $6 million this week in China, but it's at $30 million total. I seem to remember this movie from before, but I can't imagine it made 20 $23 million in Taiwan alone. That's not possible. Maybe it played in Korea and other countries. I don't know. But if you do, tell us. Oh, yes, you can. You can write to you, us. Were you having a smoke? No, <laughs> I wasn't. It, you, it came a little earlier than I was expecting. Uh, you can write to us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can also call and leave us a voicemail. And please call. Somebody call 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We're also on Twitter at Showbiz Sandbox is our handle. And we are on Facebook, facebook.com slash Showbiz Sandbox. Right. And right below that movie is Luca. The Disney Pixar film is playing in territories where Disney Plus is not available. It's available for free on Disney Plus. So in North America, you have no choice. You must watch it on your TV. You can't pay even if you want to. It opened up to $5 million in a few modest territories. Obviously, that's not even remotely where you would hope to be. We don't know the budget, but. They don't really make movies for less than $150 million, I don't think. So that's probably no. a, a good, safe bet. It's got a soft, gentle Miyazaki vibe to the movie, uh, pleasant reviews. But it's the sort of film that might just be a slow burner, like I was saying last week for In the Heights, and I was wrong. But this is the film that might repeat quite well. It seems like it's probably pretty charming. I got to check it out. I haven't done so yet. Have you or your kids? Uh, no, I mean, I was... First of all, surprised that uh, they made a film out of that that Suzanne Vega song, uh, and, but <laughs> come on, but you, yeah, 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 you got to go back. That's that's an '80s joke, literally an '80s joke. Uh, but oh, oh, yeah, 1980s, I think. Mm. His name is Luca. He lives upstairs uh, from you. I, I think it's it could be '90s, but I don't know. I'll yeah, find well, out while you keep talking. Well, okay. So a couple things. Uh, one, I turned on my Roku this week uh, because I, you know, it's the only way I can get TV these days because my cable box is broken. And let me tell you something. First of all, uh, my Roku. Every time I turn it on, it it takes over the home screen of my TV. It's like complete purple. It's everybody knows who has a Roku. This purple like cityscape that they throw at you. Not this week. Not today. Not this weekend because they had Luca. Like front and center. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And it oh, every took time over you the turn on Roku. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like, I was like, watch Luca. Watch Luca. I was like, how much are they paying you for this? So no, I did not see it. That was my <laughs> well, way of saying no. You, I didn't see it. You're right. The song came out in 1987. Very different from the gentle story of the film. But that's it for box office. You can check out the full chart in our notes. Uh, in China, 
Uh, they had the recent Dragon Boat Festival. That's a holiday, and it's a good movie-going time. But this year, it hit a seven-year low. So just as we saw the Chinese box office catching up and pretty much on a par, just a few percentage points behind 2019, uh, we took a little hit here because there has been a new COVID outbreak in one or two major cities. So everything, like all over the world, is up and down, up and down. But in North Macedonia, theaters are continuing to reopen. That's good to see. And here in North America, Godzilla vs. Kong becomes the second pandemic film to hit $100 million in our territory. Of course, A Quiet Place Part 2 was the first. What's remarkable about that is that A Quiet Place Part 2, well, it opened up after Godzilla vs. Kong, but I would say in Godzilla vs. Kong's defense, not a lot of theaters were open during its opening weekend. And of course, massive restrictions as to capacity. And of course, it's available on HBO Max. Yeah. So if you really wanted a... a Right? Yeah. I mean, if you wanted to kind of compare, it's hard to compare things. I mean, let's face it. It's not easy to compare things these days. Well, every movie is its own story, but this time in particular, you can't draw any big conclusions, but you can draw some conclusions about social justice. We're making a little progress for people becoming a little more responsible. At Amazon Studios, they have detailed a playbook to achieve diversity. They plan to hit 50% staffing of women and people of color by 2053. No, not 2050. Right, exactly. My point is, it's not some vague date far in the future. They're actually planning to hit 50% staffing by 2023. Now, that's simply for their main office. It can't be for every production that is being made for Amazon Studios. But that's two years. That's a serious, quick, no, we are focused and we're going to make this happen deal. So that's good to see. And in well, I don't UK, know if you, if you read the, the most recent uh, New York Times expose about yeah, Amazon. they got a lot of work to do. <laughs> well, no, where, where they said that they have a, a 150% turnover rate in their warehouses. So oh, maybe the warehouses, like, yeah. yeah. That's a whole like, yeah, different Yeah, we can do that world. by 2023. We're hiring all the time. <laughs> no, no, this is not at the warehouses. at the studio, so it's very different, yes. Um, no, the warehouses are a bad situation, speaking of social justice. But in the UK, the reality show Love Island is opening back up. They're getting ready for another season. But they have also detailed a duty of care for the season beginning June 28th. It's the first season since the host of the show died by suicide. And in the past, they've had one or two contestants who have also died from suicide uh, after the show and after the the tumult of the media attention that they have to deal with. You're in a show like Love Island or Survivor or The Bachelor. There's a lot of stress involved. And people all over the world are starting to pay real attention to mental health in sports in reality TV, business, it's a good thing. Everybody should, I spoke to a friend last night who's dealing with depression. You know, he doesn't like this therapist. He doesn't like that. He's not really doing anything good to deal with it, but it's hard and it's a chronic issue. You got to deal with all your life for a lot of people. And it's good that we're talking about it and making sure when you put in a real pressure situation like Love Island, that you're going to prepare and be ready in advance because it's something you got to expect you'll have to deal with. You know, I've never seen Love Island. Okay. I've never seen an episode of Love Island, but you know, I guess the same could be said of The Bachelor, but <laughs> I could, if I wanted to turn on The Bachelor and find out, wait, who's given who a rose and why are the, why is it, is this a show about florists? I don't get it. <laughs> but, uh, you know, here's the thing. I've never seen Love Island and I don't know that if I can, unless maybe it's streaming. I don't think it's streaming though. I really don't think it's streaming here in the U.S. Well, maybe if you get BritBox or or I don't know, that's I I don't think it's it's not BBC. I think it's ITV or something. So I'm not even sure what channel it's on in the U.K. 
Boy, we haven't done our homework, but maybe it's available on streaming. Uh, so, you know, that does bring us to our streaming segment where we're looking at the top streamed properties of the week. According to Nielsen, they look at Amazon Prime, to a degree, Disney Plus, oopsie, Hulu, and Netflix, and they are pulling out data any way they can. Now, they're not all cooperating with Nielsen, uh, but Nielsen is doing surveys and things, and they feel like they can get valid information for some of these. They hope to add on HBO Max and others, and I wish everyone cooperate with them, like Netflix and Disney Plus, because that would be better. But we have a chart. They look at the big properties of the week and they say, this is what's been the most watched property, whether it's a movie, a TV series, or an original. They look at it and say, all right, how many minutes were spent watching this thing? And this week, the big winner in our combined chart is Army of the Dead. The new original movie on Netflix was watched 913 million minutes, at least by people consuming stuff in their home. It doesn't include people using mobile devices or their iPad, perhaps, on the road and things like that. But as best they can track it, Nielsen says Army of the Dead was the most popular property on streaming services last week. Then, you right- know, I was driving mm-hmm. past a movie theater uh, this this past uh, weekend, mm-hmm. and they were showing Army of the Dead. Oh. I was a little surprised. Yeah. Was, oh, the, well, they wow. gave it like a they gave it. Remember, they gave it that that one week or that that one week showing in theaters before they put it on Netflix. It didn't do that well. They were also first. showing Raya. I was like, what is this? A Netflix theater? Well, that Raya <laughs> is Disney like a, Plus. I know, but like, I meant, you know, is this is this a streaming theater? Ah, I see. So five of the top ten in our combined chart are originals. Army of the Dead is on top. And then seven, eight, nine, and 10 are also originals. The Handmaid's Tale on Hulu, Who Killed Sarah, The Woman in the Window, and The Mitchells versus The Machines, all on Netflix. Out of the top 10 is Jupiter's Legacy, which is probably, after Army of the Dead, the big story of the week. Jupiter's Legacy debuted, and normally they say, you've been debuted and we're renewing you for season two. This time they said, ah, congratulations, you've just launched and you're canceled. And we thought, yeah, why? Like, you are a huge success, which is why you're fired. <laughs> so we found out another reason why it was fired. Number one, the exec who greenlit the show is gone. Number two, it was a very troubled production and it went way over yeah. budget. Number three, it got terrible reviews from critics. And now number four, it's also seeming to be rejected by audiences. They sampled it, but then they walked away. Week one, it was consumed 700 million minutes. Week two, it jumped up to a billion minutes. And we're like, what's going on? Well, week three, it collapsed to 400 million minutes. Not a good sign. You want to build or you want to maintain, but everybody who saw it either liked it and was done or everybody saw it and said, mm, they told their friends not so good. So not liked you know, by fans with, or with critics. All these millions of, mm-hmm. You know, with all these millions of minutes being, boy, Netflix is such a productivity killer. i did uh, i did just watch netflix last night 90 minutes spent watching netflix and kevin feige he's watching netflix and hulu and all his competitors because he's making content for disney plus and he says oh loki is a big success during a i think maybe uh, maybe i don't know actually i don't know (laughs) during a paley dialogue named for william paley from cbs marvel studios president and chief creative officer kevin feige said that when it comes to quote success in the streaming world i'm still learning and figuring it out he said it's a whole new world as far as i know there aren't really any nielsen ratings for streaming i haven't been given any nielsen ratings for a streaming service why would that be sperling 
Because there aren't any? They won't let them. <laughs> Nielsen yeah, would be happy because... to provide streaming Nielsen ratings for Disney+. Plus. Just give them access. He continues, all the different streaming services have access to their own information, but they don't share it so easily to the public or across services. He said, we knew, of what, course. Su- yeah, we knew what success meant at the box office. That was very clear. Everybody had numbers. There were numbers to compare it to. But with streaming, who knows? So he's saying... We know what our show is doing on Disney Plus, but we don't know what other shows are doing on Netflix and and others. So it's like, well, yeah. So clearly Disney Plus is telling them things we'd like to know. Things like how many households watched at least a majority of an episode, how many how many sampled it, how many finished it, what percentage is that of your entire household base on Disney Plus? How many stopped after 15 minutes? How many watched the second episode, the third episode? You know, we'd love to know all that stuff. But we don't. I think that's the only way to really compare streaming stuff. You can't get eyeballs. As, that's not as relevant, though it's still important. I'd love to know how many households watched Loki last week. That would be great. But things like, did they watch all the series episodes that are available? When did they stop watching it? That sort of thing would be really helpful. Netflix just says, yeah, people sampled it, meaning it ran for 30 seconds. You know, So that's useless. We can't even look at their data. But we do know some things when they're going to drop their shows. Disney Plus will now drop new episodes of their series on Wednesdays. Netflix kind of owns Fridays. That's when they drop uh, new new seasons because they do it all season by season. Disney Plus will still debut movies on Fridays for the weekend, but when they've got a new episode or a new season of stuff that they're dropping, they're going to do it on Wednesdays. That's sort of interesting. And of course, HBO traditionally only programmed one night a week. That was basically Sundays. That's when new episodes aired of Sex in the Cities, The Sopranos, Game of Thrones. I'm imagining that they do something differently on HBO Max, but I don't know. You know, and then they would rerun all of those shows every single night of the week. (laughs) But, you know, what's interesting is, you know, for all those people who say, I don't know, these two guys, Michael and Sperl, they don't know what they're talking about. They're not insiders to what I would say. And now I don't know if anybody's saying that, but if they are, I would tell them, hey, you know who else uh, doesn't know what's going on? Kevin Feige. (laughs) He he. Is about as inside as you could get. I mean, the guy is running Marvel Studios, making a mint for Disney. And he's like, I don't know. I don't know if Loki's a hit. Well, I don't know. How about walking across the lot and knocking on? Well, he, well, he knows Iger's Loki's pool. a hit. He just doesn't want to tell us the numbers he has. So so clearly he says, we just don't share. He, I don't know if it's a hit compared to what other people are doing. But if he wanted to tell us and answer the questions we had, he could do it. But he's not. And if he ever did... It would be a big whoop. No, not yet. Not yet. Not yet. Because somebody said, hey, are streaming going to undercut all these big franchises? And they made a great point. You know what? Loki and WandaVision and the stuff like the Mandalorian and the animated Star Wars thing, those are not substitutes for seeing a big movie on a big screen. They are not making Star Wars 10 and putting it on Disney+. Plus. They are making stuff that goes off in quirky directions, sets up things that they would never do. They might have done a Loki movie. But they're not doing it now, but they could have, but they made a series and that will help lead into and keep excitement for when the next big Marvel movie comes out. So, you know, they're doing stuff on TV they wouldn't do on film, certainly WandaVision that couldn't be done on a film, really. So, you know, they are very complimentary, I have to say. Well, you know, one of the things that that uh, you're talking about streaming versus theatrical. And one of the things that I have found recently looking at the box office, what little box office we have, Mm -hmm. uh, is that there are movies like the Rita Moreno movie. Yes. Okay. Which 
By the way, a lot of fun. She seems like so, oh, I never great. would have thought. She's a blast. I never would have thought like, hey, let's watch this movie. You know, like this will be fun. But she's a blast. Oh, yeah. I mean, and she's like 87. And I'm like, um, if I could be half as mobile and like coherent at 87 as yours, she's driving around. She's doing one day at a time. And then she's like, OK, time to get in the car and drive home. And she's driving home. It's nine o'clock at night. You know what she says? Oh, it's nine o'clock. It may as well be midnight. I'm exhausted. And I'm thinking, one, you're 87 years old. You should not be driving yourself to and from Culver City Studios or Sony Studios. And two, of course, you're 87. You should be in bed by nine (laughs) o'clock. I should be in bed by nine o'clock and I'm not 87. I had to move to Birmingham to take the keys out of my mom's hand or she was still driving at 90. 90 she was driving. Like There was no way to get it to keep her unless I became her hoax. You know, that's just what had to happen. It was a big deal, my moving down to Birmingham, but it had to be done. Well, you know, here's the thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, I see what you're doing there. You said big deal. Uh, but what I would say is I did not know they were releasing that movie theatrically. Well, did you know that? Well, it's a small documentary. They're not going to have a big budget to promote the Rita Moreno film. I did know it was well, coming out, but, you know, it's my job. There are exhibitors that I speak with who have said, hey, you know what would really help is if we had more. Okay, if you're going to take titles and put them on streaming services, at least give us more movies to show, right? Like just, you know, give us a ton of movies. Don't make a show, an animated movie to an empty theater at 10 p.m. Okay. And Rita Moreno was screening in theaters. It made uh, not a lot of money. It was in 227 screens. It made $75,000. And the Sparks Brothers opened on 534 screens and made 265000 So they are showing these, these films that you wouldn't expect to be seen well, on I would a big no, screen. These would on, play on the big screen. Absolutely, they would. These are to classic. 534 screens? No, no, not 534 screens. No, that's a wider release than perhaps you would expect. But there's certainly films that are worth seeing, but they appeal to an older audience, the people who go to documentaries, especially about Rita Moreno or a cool band that's been around for 40 years, are older people who are the less likely people to go back to movie theaters. So they're trying to reach a demographic that isn't coming out yet, but showing movies like that helps, you know, get the blood flowing and keep the system working and get people to know, hey, yeah, there's stuff in the theaters I might want to see. Well, I I, I know that, I I guess what I'm saying is I wonder if you put, I don't know, TV series like, and I know that you'd have to figure out a way to do this, like a Loki or like a Mandalorian into theaters, whether you could find a way to actually bring people to theaters to to see that content. If you want more content, take some of the streaming content. Cinemark said that they're going to take streaming content. Well, people are showing streaming stuff right now. They always have, especially when it comes to documentaries and indie films. That's been going on for years in terms of television. This is nothing new. They've shown season premiere episodes of Game of Thrones and things that have big sweep to them. They've done that. They've shown back to, they show Doctor Who in movie theaters all the time. Yeah. You know, this is not a new idea. Somebody said, oh, they should be more innovative. They've been showing operas and TV shows and concerts and speeches and lectures and everything under the sun. Theaters have been doing that for decades. This is not a new idea. So it's not, not a big deal to suggest it. Um, but, you know, it is good, good to see, uh, you know, they're, they're, being smart and saying, well, we got to make do with what we have. We need more content, so we'll take what we can. I'd just like to uh, underscore the fact that you just said I was not being innovative. Thank you very much. I'm just going to. <laughs> Sorry. But you also said uh, the words big deal, which you said now a couple times. I tried. I think. 
You tried. Yeah, well, it's time for Big Deal or Big Whoop, our weekly segment where we discuss the top headlines in entertainment and tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. Our first story, show after show, is planning to open or reopen on Broadway this fall. The Book of Mormon just joined the queue, but with one or two changes. Here's the first change. Producer Scott Rudin won't be involved in any day-to-day decisions and won't be a producer on the show. It was announced that Rudin would receive no financial compensation from the show going forward. Second, the South Park dudes, remember them, Trey Parker and Matt Stone, mm-hmm. yep, as yep. well as Robert Lopez, they will workshop the show with the current cast and focus on the depiction of Ugandan villagers. The show satirizes attitudes towards Africans, and the joke is actually on the Mormon missionaries, but maybe the jokes don't land so well anymore. So is this a big deal or a big whoop? Well, it's a big deal that people are coming back. It's a big deal that Scott Rudin is not going to be involved in this show. They say he won't receive financial compensation from the show. I think that refers to like weekly payments you get as a producer or a writer or whatever. That doesn't mean necessarily that the money he was making as an investor in the show isn't coming to him. I think there's a distinction there. But, you know, that's that's for other people to figure out. Listen to our last week's show for our interview with Paul Rudnick. It starts at like the 42-minute mark if you just want to hear the interview. He was really interesting about all his projects, including his relationship with Scott Rudin. Springsteen on Broadway is coming back. I think it's the first show. They're going to require proof of vaccination. I hope all Broadway shows do that. It- great way to encourage people. The Foo Fighters are touring. They're demanding people prove uh, you know, that they have vaccination. And Ricky Schroeder is angry about that. He's protesting it. And in London, Prime Minister Boris Johnson, he offered to make special accommodations for Andrew Lloyd Webber's new musical, Cinderella. But once Lloyd Webber spoke to him and realized it was only going to be for his show and not for all of the West End, he refused. Good for him. He said, no, I want all shows treated the same. I'm not trying to get special accommodation. I want everyone to be under the smart rules based on the science, but listening to the science. He says he's going to open up at 50% capacity and eat the loss himself until they can open up fully. So That's pretty remarkable. Yeah. So, uh, you know, good for him. He's like, we can't wait any longer. I don't want to break everybody's heart. And speaking of the Book of Mormon, if you want to know my thoughts on why more Mormons and other people aren't offended by the Book of Mormon, how the show cleverly does what it does, including its depiction of uh, people in Africa and why the joke is on the more missionaries, uh, check out my piece on Huffington Post. Uh, it's, a, it's a classic piece that I did many years ago. Classic. It's a piece I did a long time ago, I meant to say. <laughs> it's a classic. It's an award-winning piece. Of, but I actually, I quite like I think it holds up well. And oh my God, the dog just licked my leg. Oh, <laughs> so check it out. Wow. Okay. Um, well, you're, you, you know, we're live when the dogs are licking legs. Okay. <laughs> yeah. uh, maybe it's because you spilled all that water on your leg. <laughs> exactly. I don't know. Well, now we were just talking about streaming. So speaking of streaming, Roku says the Quibi shorts it brought have done spectacularly well. Can they give us any specific numbers? Oh, they'd have to say spectacularly well and leave it at that. They're just going to leave it at that. It's spectacularly well. I'm going to, on my chart of spectacularly well, well, anyway, Roku did give one clear sign of success. Kevin Hart's Quibi short series called Die Heart. It has been renewed. The second season will, of course, be called Die Harter. Is this a big deal or a big whoop? See, you improvised there. You improvised. You're supposed to just say it coldly coolly and 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 that's it you're supposed to say they'd have to say spectacularly well and leave it at that 
That's it. No, no riffing beyond that. That was meant to be a reference to a movie. If you get the reference to this movie, I will be very impressed. It's a cult film, very minor movie. Didn't do that well. I love it. And I love that quote that I'm doing that sort of reference. Leave it at that. If you get that reference, let us know. Is it a big deal? If you want us to know your stuff is doing well, you have to give us specific numbers vetted by a third party. That's my message to Netflix and to Roku and to everybody else. There's, oh, there's, oh, there's, the dog is shivering. Do you have a dog sprawling? I have two. Would you do, like one? What am, I, what am I supposed to do? Is he cold from the, from the rain? Do I need to do something? No. I mean, you know, dogs shiver. Okay. Okay. Good. Thank goodness. Well, keep going. Keep going. Okay. Uh, I mean, you know, give him a blanket. I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. Uh, now, there is a mistake oh. in, in this next piece. Okay, See if you so, can spot it. All right. This month, Two states have passed laws about ebooks and libraries. Maryland was the first, but New York's is on track to become law sooner than that. Actually, if Governor Mario Cuomo signs the bill, that means the New York law will be the first to head to court. Major publishers say the law violates federal copyright law and is unconstitutional, so we assume that means they'll get like all Judge Judy on the bill. What do they do? Basically, and, and that's the, the bills. What do these bills do? Basically, the laws say if you're selling an ebook in our state, you can't discriminate against libraries. You can't, you must also make an ebook version available on reasonable terms. And on the word reasonable, endless lawsuits will definitely be filed. Libraries and publishers have yet to agree on what's reasonable, and every publisher has its own answer to that question. Uh, but we're pretty sure reasonable doesn't include forcing libraries to pay a hugely exorbitant price and have to buy the book all over again every two years or after the book has been read 40 times or what have you. Is this a big deal or a big whoop? Well, it's a big whoop because it's just going to go to the library. In fact, some of the the library, you mean it's just going to go to the courts? Go to court. Some libraries, it's so crazy, some of the restrictions, they realize it's just cheaper for them to go to the bookstore and buy a member or an ebook that they want rather than buy a licensed copy. That's cheaper. Just give it to the guy. Go, here you go. Here's your book. <laughs> That's cheaper for them than go because there's not that much demand for that particular book. And it's cheaper for them just to go buy it and hand it to the person. Isn't that crazy? Now, that's for books most people will never check out. The Stephen Kings of the world are a different matter, but the system is broken. Publishers see libraries as enemies rather than their best customers and a resource that creates new lifetime readers. The courts are probably not the best place to change that, but that's exactly where this is headed. Oh, well. You know, uh, okay, so the mistake was in Mario Cuomo will not be signing anything because... He's not the governor of New York. Andrew Cuomo is. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Mario uh, kind of dead, but my, my fault. Yeah. <laughs> kind of. Well, yeah, that, uh, that, moves, that moves us on. A he's not day. dead. He's just unavailable. Yes. Um, so, no, so here's the thing. Uh, here's this, the problem with this is that you're, you're putting an analog, analog rules into a digital world. And what you really need to do is say that that libraries need to pay into a fee into a you know basically into a fund and then they have to be audited to say okay Stephen King's books were checked out x number of times and so Stephen King and the publisher of Stephen King's books get a certain percentage of that fund so you want to turn libraries into a streaming service like Netflix that just pays royalties pretty much yeah well that 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 pen, that turns dollars into dimes so i don't think the publishers are going to do that not but, if it's a lot of dimes. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'm not sure. It's a good it's a nice nice thought, but we'll have to see. 
Well, Michael, that wraps up Big Deal or Big Whoop for this week and moves us along into Inside Baseball. Inside Baseball is where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We'll explain what they mean for the business and more importantly, how they affect you. Now, today we are talking with musician Sal. Now, Sal, I I guess I should have asked you, how do you pronounce your last name? Is it Sal Maida? Maida. Meta. So it's Sal Meta and writer Mitchell Cohen. Now they are the team behind the new book, The White Label Promo Preservation Society 100 Flop Albums You Oughta Know. So we're going to actually find out all of the stuff you should be listening to on Spotify since let's face Not it. Not Spotify. Buying? You can buy albums. I'm kidding, of course. Now all they right. wrote a lot of entries in this book. They wrote a lot of them themselves, and they dragooned a lot of music and journalism friends to share their favorites as well. Mitchell's written about music and film for Cream, Film Comment, Village Voice, and many others. I mean, a list that goes on. A Grammy nominee, Mitchell was also a senior A&R executive at the record labels Arista, Columbia, Arista. and... Arista. I know, I knew as I was saying it, I was like, that's not really how you pronounce that, but I guess I'm going to have to keep going. Uh, Verve, that is, it, I love that album, uh, that that label. Well, <laughs> and by the way, uh, Mitchell, you signed the Church and the Jeff Healy Band, among others, as well I as- did. I did, yeah, Arista, that's true. Yeah, and, as well as a, a comeback album for the always coming back, Dion. Uh, later, you worked with Maxwell and, and Nellie Mackay. See, I can pronounce Nellie Mackay correctly. I don't know. You know, anyway. Uh, Savage Garden, who, ironically, my kids went to school with one of the members of Savage Garden's kids. Uh, anyway, you're currently working on a book about Arista Records. Now, Sal, you are the New York City bassist to the stars, and you've performed with, get this, Roxy Music. Sparks, Ronnie Spector, The Runaways, Echo and the Bunnymen, Brian Eno, and at least five or six of your own bands at the moment. So that, by the way, that includes Love and Spoonful, a Love and Spoonful tribute band, if I'm not mistaken, because they, they, uh, I guess they sucked live and their music deserves better. That's that's what is written here. They sucked live and their music deserves better. I don't know who who writes this stuff. Who Michael? wrote that? Uh, I, I did. Object, I object to that who on principle. They suck live. All right. Good in the studio. And yeah. Yes. The spoonful <laughs> were, were great live. I can vouch for that. Well, well, now, uh, Sal, you have a radio show called Spin Cycle. What a great name. And you can find it at thelotradio.com. And you have a memoir, Four Strings, Phony Proof, and 345s. They're all out now from Hozak Records and Books, the same company that published the new anthology. Sal and Mitchell, thank you for joining us and for patiently sitting there listening to me mispronounce many, many things. <laughs> well, guys, I have to say, I'm almost embarrassed about how many albums I hadn't even heard of in this book. I mean, I'm used to saying, okay, I know I need to hear that. I, there was stuff I'd never even heard of yet, but clearly you two do most of the writing and you had a ton of albums already in mind for this. So people will pick it up and discover albums they might never have listened to otherwise. But for you guys, when your friends suggested stuff or when Sal to Mitchell, Mitchell to Sal, what album or artist was a revelation for you once you revisited it or had someone else bring it to your attention? Uh, well, I, w- I was surprised, you know, like all I did during the 60s and 70s was spend money on records. I was surprised by how many of the albums that uh, that our friends chose to write about were albums that I did either didn't know about or hadn't paid that close attention to when they came out. 
So it was like, surprising. And I went back and listened to the albums by Sparks and Nico and Blossom Toes and, uh, and, and albums that I'd never heard in my life before, like uh, Q65 and the Mighty Riders and, and, and uh, Space Cadets. Uh, it was as much uh, like I year opening for me as I, you know, as, as I think, I think it was for Sal that, you know, when you, when you just open up um, the options for anyone to write about some little thing that they discovered that people didn't know uh, that even someone as, you know, as obsessive about music as me and Sal can be like, Oh my God, I have to check this one out. That makes me feel much, much better. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. So Mitchell kind of rescued Jackie DeShannon from obscurity for me. Although uh, uh, obviously I have a lot of work to do if I'm going to try to piece together her best work. It's a, it, it's a, it's a very complicated story. Uh, the thing about Jackie, who, who I, who I love just in, just in so many ways that her, her impact as, as a songwriter and, um, early in, in the female singer songwriter vein, early in the, in the invention of what became folk rock, uh, it, it, what, you know, she made a, like a white soul album at Atlantic with, with Jerry Wexler. She wrote with Randy Newman and with Jimmy Page. It's just, her story to me is one of the, I have to say, uh, unsung stories, you know, in, in, in yeah, 60s and 70s pop. Absolutely. Um, well, that's what people that's what people are going to get when they read this book. Uh, you're going to find these passionate essays about these people like uh, like Mitchell has this piece on Martha Rees and the Vandellas dance party. And in a seven paragraphs, you dash off a bunch of dance crazes. You swerve to the Motown Tamla tour in England. You go deep into the joys of the classic single dancing in the streets and you provide some scene setting and social political context all in seven fun graphs. And then Sal, Sal has a great piece on Fairport Convention. He argues for what we did on our holidays rather than the more typical Legion Leaf, uh, which is usually the first album people mention, though I might personally even argue for unhalfbricking because, you know, who knows where the time goes. That, that alone kind of lifts it up. But that's the kind of stuff you guys are going to do. And uh, I think what you guys were going for was like that great record store vibe where you walk into a store and there's someone there who's going to say, you need to listen to this. You need to listen to that. That was, that was exactly the point all along um, that, you know, this is what we do. You know, we, you know, we hunt down stuff in, in at garage sales and flea markets and used record stores. And if we're with a friend and we dig something out that we have and we think they may, might not, it's like you got to have this one and you know trust me on this one you'll 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 have a lot of fun with it i mean that that was that was well, there's nothing, there's behind the whole like thing. a good argument over music there's nothing like a what there's nothing like a good argument over an album or like you said you know which one is the fair the best fair part is not that one this one is you know it's fun it's, you know, it's the funnest discussion that that i can have aside from uh Arguing about the Yankees. So well, other people surprised me. I know Sal Nunziata. We've had him on the show a few times. And I would have bet dollars to donuts he'd plunk down for some Todd Rundgren album or Hall of Notes's, you know, uh, 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 or Daryl Hall's Sacred Songs or something or, or Change the Season. And instead, he went and did a left turn and went for the Yes debut album. <laughs> oh, you mean Sal Nunziata? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. That's my favorite as well. So we're in agreement. And we're in a band together. So. It's a good thing we 
Yes, albums. But uh, yeah, I love that record. You know, I, I have to say, so you, you talk about uh, go- going through record stores and garage sales, and I went to an estate sale recently that had hundreds of albums dating all the way back to the 60s. And as a, you know, I just couldn't get enough of the Herb Albert. I'm like one Herb Albert uh, record after another was great. But then, and these were actual vinyl LPs, and I would take them out of the sleeve. And of course, these are decades old records. They're all scratched. And I'm like, well, do I get this? You know, I don't... I don't necessarily even uh, know whether you're supposed to be buying records with scratches on them or not. I mean, do, what do you not, suggest? Not paying a lot. <laughs> no, no, I, these I, were all like, you know, a dollar a record. I don't, I avoid, uh, but I don't care if do- it's a quarter, a- if it's got scratches, it's not going to play. Uh, if, if the cover yeah. is dilapidated and the record's fine, I'll go for it. If it's scratched up and it's not going to play. Yeah, same. It, it's useless. Absolutely useless. Unless it's like one of the rarest records, you know. This, yeah, there, there's something that's so heartbreaking about finding a copy of a record that yep. you've always looked for and then opening it up and finding that it's like looks unplayable. And it's like it's like the one time you, that you've seen it out in the wild. And then you go like, I, I, I just can't buy it. I just can't. I just can't make myself do this. Well, you know, as I was going through all those records, there was something that that really struck me. First of all, the liner notes, beautiful, absolutely beautiful. You know, there's actual, uh, you know, actual text and photographs, and it was really great. And I still love buying albums. I still buy CDs. I I know I feel like a dinosaur in saying that, but for some reason, I still like holding certain CDs. Now, I'll only do it for certain artists, but at the same time, I know that, that for my kids and a generation younger than me, they have access to all of this music. Music that, I mean, I read an article the other day about Josquien Dupre, and I didn't have to go out and buy a CD. I just opened Spotify, and all of a sudden, I'm listening to 14th, 15th century music. So I guess my question, and it's a really poor way of leading into it, as you can tell, I'm I'm not a professional at this, uh, is... Are we in a post-album era? Does it not matter anymore? There's no more liner notes on Spotify. There's no more people buying albums, it seems like. Well, it, more to the point, there are albums on Spotify, but young people seem to be listening to playlists and individual songs. The idea of them sitting down, to listen, even though I beat my nieces and nephews into, you know, I'm like, no, they don't do it. They just listen to songs and playlists and random stuff. Well, it, 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 depends, on, it depends on the audience. I mean... For boomer audience, there has never been more reissues than ever before in the last couple of years. Uh, they're reissuing everything under the uh, the Who sell out, you know, deluxe box set, Crosby, Sills, and Nash, Asia, Lou, deluxe box set, on and on and on. Now, that's not for millennials, unless it's a millennial that wants to educate himself or herself. That's for us. Um, so there's that audience. What the Spotify, iTunes on a computer generation is doing, I really don't. I'm at a loss. Uh, as to how they listen to music, they're listening to one song, first song on a record. Or maybe some of them are going out and buying, going to, you know, rough trade or whatever, and buying copies of records and trying to educate themselves. But I would say the reissue boom, and it has been a boom in the last, 
If you remember about two or three years ago, the rumors on CDs were going obliterated. And then all of a sudden, it became every record has been reissued as the 50th anniversary, the 40th anniversary, the 45th deluxe box. Right. Yeah, it's a, it's a big 50th anniversary year. That's right. But Mitchell, as you know, uh, the history of music is always affected by the technology that's available, whether it's a 78 or a cassette or uh, th- and for most of music history, the album was, not, you know, it's only been 120, 30 years of recorded music, but a lot of it has not involved the album. The album sort of came of age in the 50s. Yeah, is it maybe something right. that will, the, you know, the album did not become a thing, especially for rock music um, until way like deep into the fifties and, you know, and, 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 and before that it was a very one, one song um, uh, world. And, you know, it's sort of like you heard one song on the radio or you bought one song on a 45. Um, we, me and Sal uh, came of age in the era of the album um you know we were excited about bringing home an album and listening to like all of it through and then listening to, to it again but that's not what's going on now clearly um i mean there are going to be like really intense fans of a certain artist billy be it like billy eilish or taylor swift who are going to run out and get every limited edition vinyl of of of, of their new albums but, you know, f- for most people, I think they're just happy to hear the same track, you know, that they love, you know, the way we used to listen to the radio and wait for our favorite song to come on. And they're not as invested in in the experience of spending a half hour or an hour, you know, with with an album in the sequence in which it was made and sent out into the world. Well, now you've worked for a number of record labels, uh, so records themselves are not um, the only thing changing, but record labels are changing as well. Uh, how has, well, first of all, I could ask you a million questions about Verve as a I was only I was at Verve for a short period of time, but uh, Verve certainly has an amazing history, but I, I was not really a part of like its, its most illustrious history. How has the record label business changed from your standpoint, from having worked there to what well, it's I'd like rather, today? You know, I, you know, speaking, you know, in terms of the book, I mean, to a large extent, the book is also the story of various labels. I mean, it's the story of what Warner Brothers was doing in the in in the in the late sixties with the Everly Brothers and the Bo Brummels and Randy Newman, and it's the story of what was happening at Elektra. Um, uh, it's a story of, of yeah. what, was, what was happening at Columbia, what was happening at the Indies. I mean, you know, it was a time when sometimes we would actually buy an album because of what record label it was on, and we, and we would take a shot. I mean, if something came out on Electra or Reprise um, or Verve <laughs> forecast in the late sixties, early seventies, more likely than not, I would I would have it. You know. I would, I would, I would fork over some money for it. I would, I would take a shot. I don't, th- I mean, I, I don't think labels have the same kind of identity anymore. The same sort of overriding philosophy, overriding A and R, um, you know, <laughs> sensibility. But during the time that we're writing about, 
I think it very much did. I mean, I think a Warner Brothers record, an Electrode record, a Columbia or Verve record meant something in terms of, you know, you know, we sort of could identify where, where, where it emanated from. That's right. I always, I always started buying anything on Hannibal Records because I suddenly identified it with those people and the artists and the right. taste of the people behind exactly it. Right. But your book is also the story of journalism today, music journalism, because you got a lot of great people on here like Jim Farber and other people. Frankly, because I'm sure they've been happy to do it in any era, but there's not a lot of work out there right now. Well, so everybody's uh, happy. To- actually, you know, they, you know, they did this um, out of love, just out of love, and out of our, you know, I reached out to. I mean, I started out as a journalist, as as, as you know, and uh, so I reached out to you know Ira Robbins and Jim Farber and Peter Keep News and Lenny Kay and Billy Altman and who you know Dave, Dave DiMartino. We'd all over the years of cross paths in different, in different magazines and stuff. And so I was, you know, that, that was like my world that I like reached out to. And, um, you know, I'm happy they chimed in. Yeah. I mean, you can find great coverage on blogs and podcasts and everywhere, but it's hard to get paid now. Yeah. People were locked down and everyone we asked said, yes, it was amazing. And it's been a hard year, of course, for journalists and working musicians, because that's how you pay the bills. And, there are no concerts right now. This book must have been a saving grace in terms of just keeping you sane and giving you something to work on, but it's got to be have been a hard year for you. Yeah, it has for me, yeah. And um, the book was a saving grace, absolutely. To do something during the pandemic, because I haven't been playing a lot. I did one session in February and, um, you know, went with my mask on and was distanced from the... Uh, engineer and producer and that's been it you know but the book was another story i mean it was fun to write it was fun to research and it was it was a lot it was a ball to reach out to people and have them say yes i mean we approached 50 yes writers and uh, we got affirmations from practically everyone as i said we had a captured audience, so um, we'll capture. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I th- I think for a lot of people, it was a it was a way, you know, in a time when we couldn't like in person connect, and was it was a way to form us kind of like the you know a kind of a community, you know, of people. I mean, that you know to you know to just to be like on their own, you know, with their own stuff, but at the same time, so be a part of this and. Uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was an interesting thing to do during a pandemic because, you know, we, we certainly had a lot of, you know, a lot of, uh, free time. Well, royalties aside, streaming can be pretty great because I'm reading this book and I can immediately go to almost every album and start to listen to it. That's pretty awesome. That's pretty exciting. I would have had to spend, you know, thousands of dollars or, you know, or to, 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 buy these albums and listen to them, I can at least sample them. And then if I decide I love it and I have to have it on my shelf, I can do that. That's kind of cool. Now, these books were sort of just teases in the old days. Nowadays, you know, you can actually, oh, there it is, Jackie DeShannon. I go out, I start listening to it right away. That's pretty cool. And But it's well, overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Ozak, our publisher, put up a Spotify playlist of at least one or two tracks from every record. And that was an education for me as well. Listen, uh, 
like say the 20 records that I don't, I'm not familiar with. So that was a really great idea they came up with to, to make a, a Spotify playlist for people to listen to it. And nothing quite captures the obsessive musical fan obsession of you guys and that I have it too, where you have this book, you come up with a hundred albums that you want to get people excited by. You do all this work. And at the end you're like, but wait, I got another 75 <laughs> albums and I got another 75 albums. <laughs> yeah. We put that in the back. You could easily do a sequel. <laughs> it's true. And, and if you, uh, yeah, we could have won another 75 each. I mean, you know, that, that brought it to a hundred. That's right. That's right. And we could have done another hundred each. Let me ask this. You, so you went to Hozak uh, Books with, with this this book. And for, for our listeners, you know, we kind of talk sometimes about uh, lots of insidery stuff. So you went with it. Was it a pitch? Did you come with a finished book? Uh, how did you well, approach them? Sal, of course, published his memoir with Hozak Books. I had books. done uh, my first book with them. And um, I, at first, was, I pitched it to them. And I really wasn't hearing back uh, from them. And I thought they weren't interested. And then all of a sudden, he said, very enthusiastically, yeah, I'm totally into this. And I immediately emailed Mitchell and I said, we're a go. You know, we really hit the ground hit the ground on this. I mean, you know, we, we wrapped up this whole book like early this year. And it was like, you know, it was it was ready to roll in May. I mean, it's just you know. I mean, they did they did an incredible job. Exactly. Um, you know, you know, we initially had a few essays each. You know, just to show people what it would be like. Uh, just you know, we did a proposal, and you know, that included some of the names of the people that we wanted to approach, and you know, what the overall philosophy of the book would be. And like like Sal said, it sat for a while. Um. But then Hozak picked it up, and then it was just off to off to off to the races. So, you know, the whole thing got wrapped up very very quickly. Did you have to pay all the writers or or the, the people writing essays for you? Because fifty is a lot of that's like herding cats. I mean, to get everybody's essays in and edited and then into the book, and uh, do you have to then pay them? They get a free book. They get. A free they get yeah, a free they book. Got a free, yeah, they got a free book. Yeah, we, you know, we each got to reach out to our like group of writers, you know. So I, I asked twenty five people. Sal asked twenty five people. They would send it to whomever, you know, you know, the person that was that reached out to them. We would look it over. We would we would swap it and swap them out. Um, you know, then, you know, we put them in order, you know, make sure that they were, you know, sort of consistent, like stylistically, not in terms of the writing, but in terms of like, you know, you know, the editorially. And, you know, the whole thing, like, the whole thing came together in, in a period of like, I don't know, six months, maybe. Well, it's a blast to read. And uh, there's a lot of great music you'll discover. We're talking to each other on Monday, June 21st, which is the 50th anniversary of Joni Mitchell's Blue, one of the great albums of all the time. You can find lots of lists that will include the best albums of all time, and Blue will be on there unless somebody's gone insane. But when you're looking for stuff beyond that, check out the White Label Promo Preservation Society, 100 flop albums you ought to know. We've got a link to Hozak Books in our show notes. Uh, Sal and Mitchell, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks for inviting us. Our pleasure.
Well, that was great of Sal and Mitchell to stop by. Unfortunately, we had I could Sal barely hear Sal. Yeah, could we had audio. I could hear him sometimes, but there was a serious delay and there was a problem. And it looks like our audio did not work well for Sal's connection. If that happened, we may have to just use our interview with Mitchell. Um, we'll figure it out in the tech, but that we started with Sal and Mitchell. Maybe the interview itself only included one of them. That'll be a shame because it was great of both of them to take the time. But whatever it is, we'll hopefully be able to cover the book. Um, you know, it just goes the, to show you this is this is this show has gone to the dogs. <laughs> That's right. You're getting but licked by a dog, and and the, now yeah. Sal and and Mitchell say the album is not dead, and I agree with them. It's still a valid out form, even if you're just listening to playlists. But some people are dead, including writer Janet Malcolm of the New Yorker. She wrote Whoa. a lot for them. She died at the age of 86. She died of lung cancer after a long, distinguished career delivering carefully researched articles and books on a wide range of topics, including Freud, couples like Gertrude Stein and Alice B. Toklas, journalism, and true crime. In college, she edited a parody of New Yorker magazine that made waves on campus. I mean, it was hugely popular. Years later, she actually found a home there. That's nice. Her most famous work is The Journalist and the Murderer, about a lawsuit between true crime author Joe McGinnis and the convicted murderer he wrote about in the book Fatal Vision. The guy hired him to tell a story, and then McGinnis basically said, this guy's guilty. <laughs> but he didn't tell him that while he was working on the book. <laughs> Ironically, that book details the conflicts between a journalist and their subject. Malcolm herself faced a lawsuit over a previous work she did on a flamboyant psychoanalyst. I remember this story when it came out and the whole fracas about it. In that lawsuit, a jury found of five disputed quotations that two were essentially false, and one of those was defamatory, but none rose to the level of a reckless disregard for the truth, which was the legal barrier that was set. Her reputation suffered but eventually recovered, and the later book, The Journalist and the Murderer, that some felt resulted from that earlier one, has essentially become a required text for college journalism students. It's somebody who a lot of people had criticism for at the time, but over the years, they either wanted to put it aside or just forgot about it. They felt maybe she made amends. Uh, she never had any other issues akin to that uh, in her later years, and she's done a lot of great work, but whether her she deserved to be remembered in such glowing terms of people almost embarrassed to mention a pretty significant part of her career that a lot of people gave her a lot, you know, I'm that would not have passed muster for me as a fact checker from everything I've ever read about that earlier story. But she went on to do great work and now she is gone and people want to remember the good work that she did. Wasn't Fatal Vision a movie? Like a TV movie? Oh yeah, movie. TV movie, absolutely. Yeah, no, it was yeah, very popular true crime that. book. Very successful, very popular. Did you ever watch WKRP in Cincinnati? Uh, you know what? There were certain shows as a kid that you always watched. And that's because they were rerun again and again and again. What's happening? Brady mm -hmm. Bunch. WKRP in Cincinnati. In was Cincinnati. It? it wasn't? It was. Oh, it was. That's one you saw. So you know Herb Tarlick. The sales agent at WKRP. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Play, played by Frank Bonner, the actor who uh, that was the high point of his acting career, though he had other credits. But he pivoted to director. He held six episodes of WKRP, then a couple episodes each of good shows like Family Ties, Frank's Place, very good show, and the famous Teddy Z. Then he really did a lot of work on three teen sitcoms, stuff that came in the wake of Saved by the Bell. He worked on Saved by the Bell, The New Class. USA High, and 105 episodes of City Guys, which was a very successful, you know, daily Saturday morning live action show that, you know, Frank Bonner had a second career at. 
also having a lot of uh, multi-talent is actor, writer, and director John Paragon. He died at the age of 66. Can you say the chant, Sperling? Can you say it? I have no idea what you're talking about. Well, look at the words right there. Can you I say I don't know. That? I mean, I, I didn't know when, when I mecca, read this. Mecca, mecca, like, hi, mecca, hi, ni, ho. No? Oh, yes, yes, yes. No, I knew it. Didn't you watch Pee-wee's Playhouse? Yes, I did, yes. Okay. As an actor, writer, and director, John Paragon is best known for playing Jombie the Giant, Genie, not Giant, on Pee-wee's Playhouse, one of the greatest kid shows of all time, and on my list of one of the greatest shows of all time, period. He also voiced Terry the Pterodactyl. Paragon is also the great answer to some Seinfeld trivia. He was Cedric in the couple Bob and Cedric, a duo that sometimes tormented Kramer. They even appeared on the famous Soup Nazi episode, stealing an armoire that Kramer was holding for Elaine. He was also on the episode The Sponge and The Puerto Rican Day. That's three big episodes from Seinfeld. That's kind of cool. Like Paul Rubens, Paragon was a member of the Groundlings, an improvisational, you know, comic troupe. That meant his path crossed with Cassandra Peterson, a.k.a. Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. And he wrote her feature film. He wrote and produced various TV specials she had, not to mention offering some <sighs> off-screen heavy breathing as the aptly named breather. But, of course, it's Pee-wee's Playhouse that cements his importance. And I thought, oh, John be the genie. No, Paragon was much more than a disembodied head. He contributed to the early sketches at the Groundlings that helped create Pee-wee. He helped write the initial HBO special that I remember seeing and the show's appearance on Broadway. And he had writing credits on more than half of the show's 45 episodes, always along with at least Paul Rubens and sometimes others. And he directed 20 of the 45 episodes as well, also, again, alongside Rubens. It was always Paul Rubens and uh, John Paragon and Paul Rubens and other people. So he was co-directing and co-wrote some of the best episodes of one of the best shows of all time. So very cool career for actor John Paragon. Well, and, uh, you know, the our guests... They had a, a very cool career. Well, they still have a, a cool careers. That's the problem. Yes. There's there's still Sal Meda and Mitchell Cohen. I, I have to thank them. I mean, talk about cool careers. They've got them. Absolutely. And we've had a cool episode, haven't we? Uh, yes, actually. And uh, you know what? If you don't want to miss the next episode, make sure to subscribe to us in iTunes, the Microsoft Marketplace, Stitcher, anywhere they give podcasts away for free. You can you can rate and, and if, did I mention Spotify? We're on Spotify. So please do subscribe to us, rate and review the show wherever podcasts are given away. Uh, you can usually do that. Not Spotify, not Stitcher, but most places you can. Links to all of the stories we've discussed on today's episode, as well as those ways to subscribe to us, can be found on our website, showbizsandbox.com. That's also where you'll find ways to contact us. Dirt at showbizsandbox.com is our email address. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We're also on Twitter, at showbizsandbox is our handle, and we're on Facebook, facebook.com slash showbizsandbox is where you can like our page. Again, that information on our website, showbizsandbox.com. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group, MGMT. They can be found on their own website, who is MGMT.com. Michael Giltz has a website, and every week it's something new and exciting. What is it this week, Michael? It's mechalekahimechahineho.com. Spell that. Yeah, I was going to say, you know what? If you really want to try and find some of Michael's coverage of the entertainment industry without, you know, a decoder ring, maybe head on over to michaelgiltz.com where all of his work is aggregated. Some of my work can be found on celluloidjunkie.com. 
Until next week, play nice. (laughs) 